On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. We're in Ecclesiastes. I think this week is part 12, chapter 7, verse 15 through chapter 8, verse 1 of our Meaningless Life uh, Bible study. This week's uh, title is A Soul Pit Stop. You ready to go? Well, uh, I don't know about you. I love cars. I love trucks, too. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated with vehicles. Growing up, I always wanted like a 1956 short bed stepside Chevy pickup truck. That was on the list. Also wanted uh, various off-road vehicles. Been a car guy since I was a little kid. My, uh, my uncle was a, a stock car driver, racer, so we'd hang out at the track. Um, my dad was a good mechanic, is a good mechanic. My brother, very good mechanic and uh, body paint guy as well. My brother today, he uh, drag races for fun. And my dad and my brother are fully restoring a frame off uh, 1955, I think it is, Chevy, if my memory is correct. Uh, it's a car my dad's always wanted. And uh, I grew up in a family, boy, you work on cars, go to car shows. I was not a great mechanic, but I do like to drive vehicles, especially uh, unusual ones, unique ones, older ones, uh, cool ones, restored ones. I like taking my kids to uh, car shows. Uh, a couple years ago, the only kid that would go that day, there was a lot going on, was my youngest daughter. So we hung out for a whole day at a car show and come to find she loves those big old 70s Pontiac muscle cars. My Cute little Tinkerbell-looking daughter. Love the uh, Roadrunners with a huge fin on the back. And if you hit the horn, it beep, beep, sounds like the Roadrunner. Well, anyways, my first car, I don't know about your first car. Uh, my first car was a 1956 Chevy. I sold it because it was not cool because it had four doors. I bought it when I was 15, and it had, I think, around 60,000 total original miles. And that was the first car that Gracie and I went on a date in. And every day now that I got five kids and wish I had that 1956 Chevy, I just wake up, kind of look in the mirror, shake my head to start the day. Like, why did I ever get rid of a 1956 Chevy with 60,000 total original miles just because it had four doors? Well, I guess when you don't know Jesus and you're a teenager, that's what uh, Solomon talks about when he uses the word folly. Anyways, today I've had a lot of cars over the years. If I gave you the list, it'd be quite a lengthy one, but uh, today I've got a truck that I love driving, hauling the kids and sports equipment and the dog around in, and also a Jeep. Let's talk about the Jeep since you ask. Well, the Jeep is the vehicle I've wanted since I was a little boy. When I was a little boy, my mom talked sometimes about getting a Jeep, and uh, she really loved them, so I grew up with my mom and love her, and she loved Jeeps, so I love Jeeps. And I always, always, always wanted a Jeep. And I, I love a Jeep because it lets me be outside. I've always struggled a little bit with uh, the seasons. I got diagnosed by a doctor with what they call seasonal affective disorder, which means I like it sunny, not dark. I like to be outdoors, not indoors. Uh, I like fresh air, not recycled air. And uh, 
And so for me, a, a Jeep is pretty awesome. My, my wife and my friends will kid me that I'm quote unquote solar powered. And uh, I would drive a motorcycle and have before, but with five kids, uh, not a good idea. So a Jeep is a, a good way to go, take the top off and roll around, uh, enjoying the sun and the fun and being outside. And and when I lived in Seattle, um, got to drive it a few months a year, which was fun. But now that we've moved to Arizona, I think I'm going to get a lot more use out of my Jeep. Well, my Jeep is a 2005. It's a two-door Wrangler, has a six-speed manual transmission and the uh, good old school six-cylinder motor in it. And it only has about 40-some thousand total miles on it because, like I said, it was sitting in the garage for the winters in Seattle. And I thought, man, now that I've recently moved to Phoenix, it's time to get this thing ready for the winter. So with my recent birthday, I got a little work done on the Jeep so I could drive it all winter with the top off. And uh, and it was cool to take it in and, and the, the Jeep's in good condition. It runs well, but it did need a little work. Over time, everything, everyone just starts to deteriorate and we need a little, little attention. And uh, so I took it in and I still had the original tires on it from 2005. So I got some a uh, little different uh, tires, little different rims, put a two inch lift on it. Um, the soft top on it had a tear, so I threw a new soft top on it. Uh, put some new uh, covers on the floor just to keep it from getting trashed. You know, it's an older rig, needs a little love. And it's uh, back on the road with new bumpers, looks good, runs good, super, super fun. So I've been driving it as much as I can and enjoying the sunshine. My kids love to go for rides in it. Recently, we were driving around. I think we're listening to Johnny Cash, which my youngest daughter is also a big fan of. And I literally just thank God. Thank you, Lord, that I, I got to take this Jeep in, make a few changes. And now I just get to take it out on the road and, and really thoroughly enjoy it. And it dawned on me, here's my weird, awkward transition, but you get what you pay for, and this is free. Our souls are, are like my Jeep. Uh, even good, godly people who love and walk with the Lord, we all just sort of break down, and occasionally uh, we need to pull over, ask some diagnostic questions, and make some adjustments in our soul. It's just the way life is. Nothing to be discouraged by, nothing to be ashamed of. And in this section of Ecclesiastes, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to do a little soul pit stop, and Solomon's going to act like the mechanic, and we're going to pull over, and he's going to ask us some diagnostic questions about our soul, and that's going to expose these nine questions, Will, various ways that we're viewing God and living life to see whether or not that is, in fact, true and good and right. We'll get healed up, we'll get tuned up, and back on the road enjoying life with God. I love you, I want good for you, and I hope we'll that this is uh, helpful for you. Here's the first question. Uh, do you believe in karma? Ecclesiastes 7.15 says, I've seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of the wicked. Uh, James in the New Testament talks about what he calls pure religion. And that pure religion follows in the path of his big brother, Jesus Christ. And pure religion is all about grace from God, where you don't get what you deserve and you do get what you don't deserve all because of Jesus. But there's also bad religion. Uh, it's not just a band, it's also a lifestyle. And bad religion is usually in some form or fashion, not about grace, but about karma. And in karma, you only get what you deserve. Now, let me tell you how this works. 
There are Christians who don't believe in karma and would disavow karma, but the truth is they functionally operate by it. What I mean is this. If something bad happens to someone, we can wrongly assume that maybe God was punishing them for being a bad person. Conversely, if something good happens to someone, we can wrongly assume that maybe God was or likely blessing them for being a good person. But the truth is, this isn't how it works. Solomon tells us sometimes good people die young, like Stephen, who was martyred and murdered in the book of Acts, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who was killed in his early 30s. And sometimes wicked people live long lives, including the Herods and the Pharaohs and, and the bad guys and their families throughout the history of the Bible. Just because someone's life is hard doesn't mean they're bad. Just because someone's life is easy doesn't mean that they're good. Just because someone lives a long life doesn't mean that God was excited to keep them around. And just because someone lived a short life doesn't mean that God couldn't stomach them. It doesn't work like that. So here, here's the big idea. When life is going well, don't pat yourself on the back for earning it, but rather thank God for his grace. When your life is going poorly, don't automatically assume that you're a bad person, have done something tragically wrong, or God is punishing you. That may or may not be the case, but I'll be honest with you. The, the person that I just absolutely adore, it's a little girl, um, she has the worst health of any human being I have ever known. More surgeries and pains and complexities than anyone I've ever known. She's also among, if not the godliest young woman I've ever met in my entire life. I don't fully understand why, you know, bad guys get to run around doing bad things and, and she can't even run because her legs don't function. I don't understand all of that. But the point is, when things are bad, don't assume that it's because they're a bad person. And when things are good, don't assume it's because they're a good person. That's his point. And what this allows is, furthermore, when someone else is hurting and struggling, we should not assume they have some secret sin or did something wrong to bring trouble on themselves. That too may or may not be the case, right? We don't know. This allows us to be more compassionate, empathetic, understanding toward others. And if you read the Bible, you realize that Judas got paid for betraying Jesus and Job lost everything for honoring the Lord. It just goes to show that sometimes the good guys don't win at least in this life, and sometimes the bad guys do. And that allows us to just take any notion of karma and just junk it and dump it to move on from it because it harms our relationship with God and others. And the truth is, you, you may not functionally really consider this as much as you should. You may theologically say, I believe in God's grace, not in karma, but functionally and practically are you angry with God when you've been doing the right thing and things go bad? Well, maybe you're working in karma. Uh, do you think when things go good, it's because you deserved it and earned it and God was blessing you? It may be because you're functioning in karma. Uh, when the proverbial anvil drops out of the sky on someone else's life, is your first thought, huh, I wonder what secret sin they have. Don't do that. That's what Job's buddies did. And Job was a good godly guy and he suffered tremendous loss and it wasn't because he did anything bad or wrong. Sometimes we just don't know what's going on, and the Lord's the only one that knows. Number two, you ready? Buckle up, buttercup. Here's the question. Do you chase extremes? Ecclesiastes 7, 16 through 19. And if you're a religious person, like a real uptight kind of Ned Flanders-ish believer, um, you're, you're going to want to put a seatbelt on because this is going to tweak you. Uh, he says, so don't be too good. Hmm. 
Would you tell that to your kids? So don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? Sounds like a frat guy on Saturday evening right before he goes out to break commandments while wearing a Beastie Boys t-shirt. Don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Pay attention to these instructions. For anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. One wise person is stronger than 10 leading citizens of a town. Okay, let me unpack this. It seems like he's saying, well, you know, don't, don't do horrible things, but don't, don't, don't avoid horrible things. Just do horrible things in moderation. Well, is that what God the Father would say? That's not what I would tell my kids. What is he saying? Well, Jesus talks about the path to heaven being a narrow one. You remember that? It's a narrow path. And there are two ways to veer off this pious path. One, you can veer to the left by overly and wrongly emphasizing grace. Two, you can veer to the right by overly and wrongly emphasizing laws or rules. Let's unpack this. What he's wanting us to do is walk down this narrow path, and he's cautioning us from drifting to the left or to the right. Veering to the left is pretty easy, especially if you're lazy. You convince yourself that God is only and always altogether love, uh, that God is like a permissive parent. You know, the kind, the kind that when their kids were in junior high and having other kids over for sleepovers, this was the parent who would go out and get the weed and the beer just to, to be the permissive, cool parent. In this understanding, God is more concerned about love than holiness. God understands, bro, nobody's perfect. You know, life's hard. We got a lot of pressure. God doesn't want us to be burdened with strenuous efforts for a disciplined life. And I just kind of see this attitude comes with a hacky sack. Uh, no one is perfect. Um, you know, God already sent Jesus to forgive us. And, and Jesus' forgiveness is like a blank check. And since Jesus is picking up the tab, we might as well order another round of drinks while we're busy dating, relating, and fornicating. Well, that is the view that some have of God. That God is just sort of this easygoing, ex-hippie parent who's, you know, sort of fried a few brain cells and uh, is just sitting there with their feet up, just saying, whatever, man, kids will be kids. You know, nobody's perfect. I understand. There's 50 bucks in the nightstand. Go have a good time. Just, you know, don't hurt anybody. That kind of I don't know, hippie parent view of God. And it's pretty easy. So, I mean, the Bible talks a lot about God's love and God understands. And, you know, Jesus is super easy going and chill and laid back. And it's easy to veer to the left with this sort of compromised, unholy, half-hearted, slouching lifestyle that's like, well, man, you know, sleep with who you want to sleep with. Do what you want to do. Because, you know, who am I to judge, man? Jesus said, don't judge and this is all about just everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And Judges says that's not a good idea. Well, veering to the right takes a bit more effort and it attracts those who are devout, serious, and disciplined. And so in this model, you convince yourself that God is a stern judge. I'll bang the table. He, he makes rules. He's devout, serious, disciplined. Uh, this is like a, a parent who sets up a merit and demerit system with a chart on the fridge. You did something good, Johnny, you get one point. 
Sally, you didn't clear your dishes, you lose one point. It's all about keeping, keeping score. Well, what happens with these kinds of neat neck, top button buttoned, no fun and fundamentalism types is um, you think, well, God made some rules. I'll make some more rules. Apparently, God loves rules. The Bible's filled with rules. We'll just keep making rules. Yay, rules, more rules. And if somebody breaks your rules, then you judge them or you punish them. And you've got your own chart on your own fridge and you're keeping score of your own life. Oh, I was a good person today. Two merits for me. Oh, I had a bad thought. One demerit for me. And then you start judging everybody else by your chart on your fridge. And next thing you know, you're just a real pain in the shrink to fits and no fun at all because you're always walking around with a robe and a gavel and just making rules and then judging people and hammering the gavel and condemning them and coming to conclusions. And, and here's your problem. You ready? You don't even distinguish between God's laws and your laws. You don't. And these kinds of people, they make awful spouses and awful parents because if somebody breaks one of their laws, they just assume that God's laws were broken as well. And so they start calling things a sin that are not a sin. I was over at somebody's house a while ago. Oh, this family had rules about the rules about the rules about the rules. I mean, the Pharisees would show up and feel sorry for these kids. Parent punished the kid because the kid sat in the wrong chair in the living room. What? Come on. It's like, there is no first and second chair Inthians where there's rules about who gets to sit in what chair. It was ridiculous. They shamed the kid, publicly berated the kid in front of us guests. You know, our rules are that, you know, the kids sit over here and we sit. I was like, oh my gosh, really? I felt terrible for this kid. Man, what a horrific environment to, to grow up in. It's like life is a courtroom and court is always in session and you're always guilty until proven innocent. And your parents don't just take God's laws, they take their laws and co-mingle them together and are always rendering verdicts. And the poor kids either grow up as just the weirdest, most religious, law-abiding, neat-nick, fearful, freaked-out, oddball kids, or they grow up to just say, I'm gonna just, I don't know which rules are God's and which rules are not God's. I'm just going to break all the rules because I'm so sick of this law-based, graceless environment. You could see on both sides, if you're really honest, neither provides a, a, a real good lifestyle. And what happens is some of us go to the left, some of us go to the right, and some of us go to the left for a while, and then we get all rule-based and go to the right, and then we get a little bored and we go back to the left. And so there's a story in the Bible that actually hits this. If you remember the parable of the prodigal son from the Lord Jesus, uh, there were two brothers, and the younger brother veered to the left. He's drinking a lot, sleeping around, being a fool, till he runs out of cash and heads home smelling like cognac and pigs. The older brother veered uh, to the right, um, and what he did, uh, he just became a smugly self-righteous, uh, rule-keeping, judgmental, unloving, haughty. He, he even said basically to his dad, I've never broken any rules. I'm a good son, way better than that other son. The point is that both brothers were wrong, and both brothers have a lot of followers to this day. All right, how about you? Do you veer to the left? Anybody see my Bible or my pants? Do you veer to the right? I got rules about the rules. Don't break my rules. Solomon wisely says that both the grace abusers on the left and the rule makers on the right have erred and need a course correction. 
Jesus, of course, is the perfect example of staying on this narrow path. And when Jesus was walking this narrow path on the earth, those on the left found him a bit too serious about sin and repentance and life change. Like when he told a woman at a well to stop sleeping around, he wasn't very tolerant of her alternative lifestyle and her free choices made as a grown woman with, with rights, you know. Those on the right found Jesus a bit too lax. They accused him of being, quote, a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. He's gone too far. We heard that he, on weekends, only wears a lampshade. Well, here's the truth. Jesus did drink and he did eat, including attending some pretty swanky parties with some pretty questionable characters. But Jesus was never guilty of drunkenness or gluttony. Jesus never needed a designated driver um, and he, he never needed lap band surgery. He, he was a guy who lived within his means. Now, what the religious people did and why they were frustrated with Jesus is God's laws do say don't get drunk and don't be a glutton. But they added more rules. Well, to make sure you don't get near that, then don't go to parties and don't hang out with reprobates and don't be in the presence of anyone who is eating or drinking. So they took God's laws, and to protect God's laws, which don't need protecting, they added their laws to God's laws, and then they judged Jesus for breaking their laws. And the whole point is that eventually they got so frustrated that they killed God for breaking their rules that they made to defend his rules. Religion is ridiculous. The truth is also that Jesus was and is a friend of sinners and remains so to this day. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That's how he and I maintain our friendship. How about you? Do you veer to the left, abusing grace so that sin may abound? Do you veer to the right, making rules that God never made and living a life which is not very pleasant or fun for you or for those around you? Um, I'll just hammer this point. I was reading a commentator. Uh, he calls these nice Christians, priggish Christians, sanctimonious Christians, tight-shoed Christians, purse-lip Christians, stickler Christians, insufferable Christians, prudish Christians, doctrinally correct Christians, know-it-all Christians, ostentatious Christian, quiet time every day or I'll go to hell Christian, conceited Christian, orthodox Christian, unchristian Christian. You get the point. We can veer to the left, we can veer to the right. The man who fears God avoids these kinds of extremes. It's curious that Jesus was sometimes rebuked for being too far to the left and other times rejected for being too far to the right. Yea, Lord Jesus, we wanna stick with you. Point number three, do you believe in our sin nature? Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20 says, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Uh, when someone is acting in an ungodly way, just yelling at them to stop is not enough. That's like yelling at a blind person to see or a deaf person to hear. Yell all you want, you're not going to be able to fix the problem. There's an innate inability that needs to be overcome. Here's the big idea of the Bible. And this is hugely important and helpful, and it's not I mean, it's not the most joyful. I don't know if you'd put like on your resume, you know, sinner, but the truth is it helps us understand what's wrong with us, right? I mean, 
Otherwise, if you believe this, hey, you're a good person, you're like, well, why do I do bad things? Well, the world is filled with good people. Well, then why do we all do bad things? Oh, you're a bad person and everybody's a bad person. Well, that makes sense. At least now I know what's going on. And once the solution is appropriately identified, uh, it actually can fit the real problem. And the solution, of course, is Jesus. And we need our old nature, our sin nature, replaced by a new nature that has new desires for holiness and new power by the Holy Spirit. Now, every one of us, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is a sinner by nature and choice. We have sins of omission, where we don't do the good, sins of commission, where we do do the wrong, sins of thought, word, deed, and motive. Once you understand this, you understand what's wrong with you and what's wrong with others, and the answer is everybody needs Jesus' forgiveness, a new nature to overcome the sin nature, and the Holy Spirit's power to overcome the power of sin. For those of you who are parents, this is why the goal is never just to raise moral kids. If your kids are not yet believers and they're little and they're defiant, it's because they have an old nature, a rebellious, sinful nature. So what they need is a new nature through Jesus. And through that new nature, they'll have new desires and start obeying and a new power through the Holy Spirit toward obedience. See, the problem is not just on us. The problem is in us. That's why Jesus came to die for our sin and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to give us a new nature with new desires and new powers for a new life. And, 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 and this helps us to be a little more understanding. We're not just trying to make people act differently. We want them to meet Jesus and get a new nature. And it also allows us to be a little more patient and compassionate with one another until we get to the kingdom and we see Jesus. The truth is every one of us is a work in progress. Knowing that we are sinners on a planet filled with sinners gives us a bit of grace for others and ourselves. We, we can also then stop pretending that we have it together. I mean, social media is just the, the best place to lie. Just pretend that you're someone you're not trying to present life in a way that it isn't so that everyone will think that the curse hasn't come to your home and that that, that sin has not affected your life. Here, here's another selfie and another quip. Everything's just all thumbs up for me. Um, sorry, life isn't good for you. Apparently, um, apparently, sin has not infected and affected my life. We, we give these illusions and they become very uh, hard to maintain, and they become very discouraging of others. And when you say, hey, I'm a sinner, man, I got problems and mistakes and failures and faults and flaws. And, and if you get to know me, you're going to see those. And I get to know you, I'm going to see yours. And together, we're going to walk with the Lord Jesus and, and see if we can't become a little more like him every day by the grace of God. That allows us to be honest and to open up about our struggles and our shortcomings. There's really something freeing about just the honesty of saying, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, and there's work to be done, so welcome to my world. Point number four, do you live for the approval of others? Don't answer that one too quickly. Take some time and ponder it honestly. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22, don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you, for you know how often you have cursed others. Well, apparently 3,000 years ago, they had this big problem called eavesdropping, busybodying, or gossiping. 3,000 years later, I don't think the internet has helped. If you're an eavesdropper, busybodier, and gossiper, wow. Technology allows you to 
be in a position that previously only God was in. You see, for years, only God could really peer into the daily events of a person's life, seeing what they do and hearing what they say. But now we all get to sit in a little God-like seat through technology, peer in on everyone else's life. Ooh, see their photos, read their posts. And then we start obsessing over their opinion of us. Are they following us? Do they like us? Do they, do they click that button when we posted something that, that showed the world that they approve of us? Did they say something bad about it? Did they unfriend us openly, publicly, shamefully? Here's the problem Solomon says. There is usually somebody somewhere saying something about us that they would never say to our face. The truth is people say things through technology that they would never say to our face. They say things about us they would never say to us. And if we're living for the approval and likes of our fan base, we're doomed for destruction. And this last year has been a bit of a head-on collision for me, but I've had people say, oh, did you read this? Did you read this? Of course not. That's why I'm still alive and haven't lost all hope. I'm not searching and seeking out everyone's opinion of me. I've got a long view of things, and one day we'll stand before the Lord Jesus, and like an umpire at a game, he'll make the call. Until then, it's just a bunch of fans in the stands. Every single one of us has said some things about others that we hope never gets back to them. And so what Solomon is saying is, cut people some slack. Don't be so easily offended. You know, if you've said some things about others that, mm, 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 that was not very helpful, nice, or good, when they do it to you, don't just uh, start flamethrowing online and invite the universe into your pain and misery. Um, I mean, this can happen fast, and I've been guilty of it too. I'm not taking the high ground on this. Um, but boy, flamethrowing, discussions, chats, emails, texts, social media posts. You know, if you go to the zoo, you got to be careful around the monkeys. They like to pick up their poo and just start chucking it at each other. And uh, I tell you, a lot of stuff on the internet is just a day at the zoo with the monkeys. Solomon's advice is real good. Here's what he's saying. Ignore it. Don't go looking for it. Don't obsess over it. So teenage girl, turn off your phone and stop worrying about who liked the photo of your painted toenails. And 20-something guys, stop worrying about your buddies and whether or not they like your new girlfriend's jeans, right? There are better things to do, like pretty much anything. Anything. Anything is probably better than obsessing over what others are saying and stalking them to see if maybe they are saying something that pertains to you. Going to waste a whole lot of life and you're going to lose sight of who you are. All of a sudden, you're going to start overreacting and then trying to become whatever will garner the approval of others and you lose your entire self. And I've seen this as a dad with teenage kids. It's like they reinvent their identity for approval and they never figure out who they are and their identity is not secure in Christ. And as a result, uh, their worst critics and enemies and trolls and opposers become the ones who rule like God over them, determining what they say and do and where they go and, and, and how they dress and how they present themselves. It's a sad, sad sickness. That's what it is. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. 
There's only so much opposition, criticism that your soul can endure, and you've got to guard it. And you need to leave it open to the Lord and to godly people to give you counsel and feedback, um, but not the entire universe, especially anonymity made possible through technology. Number five, have you been uh, stupid and foolish? Our pit stop continues. Here are the diagnostic questions. Ecclesiastes 7, 23 through 25, he says, I've always tried my best to let wisdom guide my thoughts and actions. I said to myself, I am determined to be wise, but it didn't, it didn't work. You ever tried to do the right thing and it didn't work? Wisdom is always difficult, distant rather, and difficult to find. I search everywhere, determined to find wisdom and understand the reason for things. I was determined to prove to myself that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness. Here's what he's doing. You ever seen that feature on Google Earth? It's pretty amazing. You can sort of click in on an area, say a house or whatever. You get a view of it and then you can pull up. Oh, you see it from a more aerial perspective. Oh, here's where it fits in the neighborhood. You pull up more. Oh, this is where it fits in the city or the state. You pull up even more. Oh, this is its place on the globe. Um, sometimes it's really good to do a Google Earth of your life. You get so stuck. We get so stuck down in the details, only seeing what we can see and understanding what we can understand. Pulling back, pulling up, and looking back at the most recent season of your life, just ask yourself, where were you wise and where were you foolish? What things in your recent past seemed smart and in reflection, they were just dumb. Ideas you held, fights you held, money you spent, things you did, Here's what Psalm is saying is some things are not necessarily sinful. They're just, he says, stupid, foolish, and madness. These are the things you can't get put in jail for or kicked out of a church for. But they're just dumb. This would include the guy who never fixes the leaky corner of his roof and eventually his whole house is destroyed. This would be his teenage son who stays up all night obsessed with clashing clans until they're exhausted and their grades begin to suffer. This is the overly responsible but not highly discerning young woman who probably should have gotten a puppy but instead found a pathetic guy to bring home, feed water, and pick up after instead. These are not necessarily things that are always sinful. They're just foolish. They're a waste of time and energy. It's not a sin to eat your lawnmower. It's just a really bad idea. That's the big idea. Looking back on your life, especially in the more recent season, you go, that was just foolish. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that again. I, I, that needs to just stop. That was not, I thought maybe that was a good idea at the time. I don't know what I was thinking, but in retrospect, wow, bad idea. That's what he's talking about. Number six, is sex the bait on your hook? Ecclesiastes 7.26, he says, I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare, and her soft hands are chains. Those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. How are you doing sexually? And in our day, let's just be honest, it ain't easy. I mean, Solomon had a harem, and you can get there on your phone assembling one in mere seconds by just clicking on certain sites or connecting with certain people. I'll remind you here, Solomon's a dirty old man at this point. He's living in a huge palace as the richest, wisest man on earth. He has, if you total up his uh, 
wives and his concubines, about a thousand women. That's a lot. And what he's saying is, uh, doesn't have a real relationship with any of them, doesn't trust any of them, doesn't enjoy any of them. Now, some of us would hear this and we think he's speaking ill of women. I don't think he's speaking well of all women. He mentions a thousand women. These are the women that are in his house. Um, this is a man talking about his life. And if it was a woman talking about her life and she said the same thing, that uh, the guys that she had dated and slept with and lived with were all bad guys, I wouldn't think that was an indictment against all men. I think that would be her talking about her painful experience and trying to share with the rest of us so that we could avoid that same kind of misery. Um, my point is this. Solomon wrote, I think, Proverbs throughout the course of his life, Ecclesiastes near the end of his life, and Song of Songs at the beginning of his life, also called the Song of Solomon. If you read the Song of Solomon, it is a love story between he and his first wife, the wife of his youth, to quote Proverbs 5. Now, if you read it, it sounds like the most amazing marriage ever. They're, they love each other. They, um, they enjoy one another. They're passionate with one another. They're satisfied with one another. They're free with one another. And then she's gone. I don't know where she goes. Solomon just starts gathering other women. He becomes this sick, perverted, dirty old man. By the end of his life, he's just jaded. He's not happy. And, and he's got a thousand women, but he doesn't have a wife, a friend who he can trust, who he loves, who he enjoys, who, who he can grow old with and hold hands with and pray to God with and sing to God with and enjoy the grandkids with. By the end of his life, his wives are worshiping false gods. They're funding high places for ritual prostitution, and they're funding the equivalent of abortions, that is child sacrifice to their pagan gods, all on his dime. These are his wives. He should have just stayed with his first wife. I mean, she was amazing. And whatever happened, it doesn't seem to be her problem. After a lifetime of chasing his every fantasy, Solomon is saying, I, I never met a woman like my first wife. <laughs> Just goes to show you that growing old, holding hands with your spouse is still the best way, and it beats a porno. Beats every porno ever made for real joy and satisfaction. You know, this struck me some years ago. I was at a uh, conference um, where they were celebrating a particular Bible translation and its history and legacy. And one of the most uh, prominent scholars who was involved in that process was present. And before they kind of had this you know, dinner to thank the Lord for his grace through this translation of the Bible, um, there was a time of worship. And I looked over and one of the chief scholars involved in that process was... Um, holding his wife's hand with one hand and had the other hand up in the air, worshiping the Lord. And his wife was doing the same thing. And I looked over, I was a young man, this was some years ago. And I thought, boy, that's a great picture right there. You want to be old with one hand up to Jesus and the other hand holding your spouse's hand. 
living life together as friends, seeing your kids and grandkids grow up, loving, trusting, serving, caring for one another. Solomon's saying, it's hard to find somebody like that. And he found one and somehow he ruined and wrecked it. That's my guess. And he found a thousand other women, but he never found a woman like that woman. It all goes to show maybe the best person is the person you're with. And some of you maybe have difficult marriages. I don't think you need a new spouse. You need a new marriage with the same spouse. Grace and I like to talk about that a lot. Sometimes people will say, this ain't work. I need to go get a new spouse. But then they just do the old marriage with a new spouse. It's better to get a new marriage with the same spouse. And I think he's got a moment of regret here where he's saying, man, I wish I had her back. I wish I would have cherished her and valued her. I traded her in for a thousand women, and there's not one that I enjoy as much as I did her. What was I thinking? That was dumb. Number seven, do you find men or women more virtuous? This is kind of the question. Do you lean towards chauvinism or feminism? Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 27 and 28, he says, This is my conclusion, says the teacher. I discovered this after looking at the matter from every possible angle. He's been thinking about this. Though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. Only one out of a thousand men is virtuous, but not one woman. Here's the big idea. The, the world is filled with some bad people. Users and abusers are everywhere. Some bad people are men. Some bad people are women. If you think that the men are more trustworthy, safer, and godlier, you lean towards chauvinism. If you think that the women are more trustworthy, safer, or godlier, you lean toward feminism. Solomon is here sitting on his gold throne overlooking his empire. He's looking over the thousand women that constitute his harem. And what he's saying is, I can't find one good-hearted, godly, trustworthy, faithful woman out of the thousand. And then he looks over at his male employees and he says, out of every thousand guys, maybe there's one who's worth his weight. And that ain't a glowing recommendation. That means that in his estimation, in his empire, uh, the men are 0.10% better than the women. That's, that's not a real commendation. The problem is not men or women. The problem is men and women. What tends to happen in the gender wars, the men are the problem, the women are the solution. No, 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 the women are the problem, the men are the solution. Psalm is saying everybody's a problem. We need a solution. And the solution is God and godly people with integrity to do life with, whether they're men or women. And once you find people of integrity, people of godliness, people who are safe, people who are trustworthy, you need to know you found something incredibly rare, more than one in a thousand. And if they're willing to be your friends, or if they're willing to be your spouse, well, praise God for them and do all you can to be like them so that somebody else can look at you and say, well, I got one decent person in my life. It'd be good if it was you. Finding good people is tough. I mean, Solomon's got enough money. He can afford to hire anybody. His salaries are going to be off the charts if need be. He can go out and afford to hire the best and brightest, but he still can't find people of integrity, people of sincerity um, that, that are trustworthy and safe and godly and hardworking and good. Do you tend to think that the problem is men? Do you tend to think that the problem is women? Do you tend to think that the solution is men? Do you tend to think that the solution is women? Um, 
the problem is men and women and the solution is godliness. That's the solution. Uh, Grace and I know a lot of people. And by God's grace, there are some people that we would say, men and women, uh, some really wonderful people. But, but people like that are hard to find. And it's easy to find a lot of people. It's hard to find a few good people to do life with. How's it going? And are you one of those kinds of people? Number eight, do you blame God for evil? And this might be theological, might be less theological and more just emotional and painful. He says this, Ecclesiastes 7.29, but I did find this, God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. If my memory is correct, some translations say, God made us straight and we've gone crooked. See, when God finished his work creating this world, he called it good. When God finished making humanity, he called us very good. Everything that is bad and very bad is in some way the result of human sin. And, and some of you, you believe in God's sovereignty, but you believe in God's sovereignty so much that you start to make him responsible for evil. God's good. God is sovereign and good. God is not bad to any degree or in any way. God is not evil. The Bible says that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So when evil occurs, the very worst thing to do is to blame God. This world is not the way God made it or the way that God will remake it for eternity. Every one of us has chased a crooked downward path into darkness and have no one to blame but ourselves. Because sin has entered the world, some things happen that we just don't understand, but everything is, is infected and affected by sin and the curse in such a way that things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way that things or not the way that God made them, nor the way that God will remake them. And so the only way out of this is to follow the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And he's the one who comes to straighten us up and to pull us out and, and to get us back onto that upward path that reflects the goodness and the glory of God. So don't blame God for evil. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to run from God when you need to run to God. You're going to blame God for things that God did not do, and you're going to put yourself in a position of being God's judge, and that just ain't a place you're supposed to be, and it's not going to go well. Last question, number nine. Here's our soul pit stop coming to its conclusion. How can you grow in wisdom? Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1 says, How wonderful to be wise, to analyze and interpret things. Wisdom lights up a person's face, softening its harshness. Let me tell you this about life. It ain't a paint-by-numbers kid. Some of you are more engineers, architects, um, accountants. You like things orderly. You like things to go according to a plan. You like step one, step two, step three. Uh, the truth is, life is not a paint-by-numbers kit. Every day, every circumstance has some complicated variables. Sometimes we don't know exactly everything that's going on, and so we're doing the best we can. Other times, it's a bunch of data that we don't know how to interpret or analyze. Other times, we just don't know what to do. This one doesn't really fit the grid. I had a friend of mine, tangentially, called the other day a pastor. He's like, we have people in our church that are growing legal marijuana. What do you think about them being church members? Well, they're not doing anything illegal. 
Um, some will say that it's comparable to giving away prescription drugs or mm, running a bar or a winery. Others would disagree. Yeah, that's a tough one. You probably have opinions on it. That's fine. Uh, I'm thinking it through because it is a complex situation. Would you not allow someone to partake of communion and, and, and attend your church and become a member because they were growing legal marijuana in one of the states that enabled it? I don't know. Um, if you're going to keep them out, are there other people that are sleeping together or mm, doing things that are unethical or unholy, but not necessarily illegal that you, you would also similarly discipline or deny membership? The whole thing just gets real complicated. Here's my point. Life is filled with these situations, these scenarios, these ethical dilemmas, these, hmm, I don't know what to do. Should I stay married or get a divorce? Should I um, take that job or not take that job? Should we have another child or not have another child? Should we buy that house or not buy that house? Should I date that person or not date that person? Should I go to that church or not go to that church? It ain't a paint-by-numbers kit. Should I stay in that relationship or get out of that relationship? Should I give money to that cause or should I not give money to that cause? Should I should I start reading that author and letting them inform my understanding? Or is that not a good idea because some things they say are not right? Life is filled with a lot of complexity. Life ain't a paint-by-numbers kit. Somebody called recently. My parent, they say, is on a ventilator. They want to know whether or not I should unplug the machine. If I do, they'll die. But it seems like that their brain is not functioning. But there's a chance they should come. They could maybe perchance come back, but we're not sure. And we don't know how long to wait. And what do you think I should do? It's like, wow, this is not a paint by numbers kit. Life is complicated. And when you're dealing with real people and real scenarios, things get real complicated. And this is where wisdom comes in and guides us forward. Wisdom allows us to analyze what is happening and interpret how to respond. That's what Solomon just said. And what wisdom brings, it brings a peace to our soul that shows forth in our face. You can tell somebody's emotional state oftentimes by looking them eye to eye, face to face. Okay, you're worried. You're angry. You're devastated. You're joyful. And what he's saying is, that wisdom lights up a person's face, softening its harshness. There's a peace in the soul that radiates forth in the face. That's what he's saying. There's a confidence that God knows and God is with me and God the Holy Spirit is in me and he is the spirit of wisdom. The Holy Spirit, he is uh, the person, the presence, the power that allowed the Lord Jesus to live a life filled with wisdom and Jesus sent me the same Holy Spirit to, to lead me, to guide me, to direct me, to inform me, to instruct me, to guard me, to protect me. How's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? You may say you love Jesus. I hope you do. Can you say you love the Holy Spirit? You may say... Um, I have a growing personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Can you say, I have a growing personal relationship with the Holy Spirit? The only way to grow in wisdom is to be filled with, empowered by, in relationship with, sensitive to the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. 
since life is not a paint-by-numbers kit. He's the one who really knows everything that's happening. He's the one who leads and guides, instructs, informs, protects um, the children of God. When we look at the Lord Jesus' life, we see that he was filled with the Spirit, that he was um, led by the Spirit, that he rejoiced in the Spirit, that when he was baptized, the Spirit descended on him. We see all of this, for example, in Luke's Gospel. How did Jesus grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God? Well, he did it by the per person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. How can you grow in wisdom? Who do you need to talk to? What do you need to obey that you already know? What writers or teachers do you need to listen to? Who do you need to interview and take notes from? Uh, where can you go to mine wisdom? God and his people are the places that wisdom is found, and of course, the scriptures. And so how's your time in the word of God? Not just looking for things that are true, but also things that are truly helpful and practical. Not just getting all of your doctrine in order, though that is exceedingly important, but having that doctrine inform and direct your life course and your decisions and your relationships and your sexuality and your finances and your emotional well-being and your marriage and your parenting or whatever season you might be in, all the way down to your singleness and or dating. This is a little pit stop. We've pulled over and Solomon has asked us sort of eight diagnosed, excuse me, nine diagnostic questions that uh, really are eight questions that then culminate with a final question on wisdom. How can we, how can we make adjustments by God's grace in our soul? How can we make adjustments in our understanding? How can we make alterations in our life so that we continue to proceed forward with wisdom, enjoying the life that God gave us? And back to my silly analogy at the front of our time together, and thank you for giving me so much of yours. Um, the Jeep was running and rolling down the road, but with a few modifications and adjustments, everything's just a lot better and a lot more joyful. And I believe that God is a good God and I believe that God wants us to uh, enjoy the seasons of life that he brings to us. And he wants us to um, not be discouraged when there are adjustments and changes that need to be made. And when there are lessons to be learned, that he's a good father who loves his sons and daughters. And he has wisdom to share with us so that we can live a life that is more glorifying to him and more enjoyable for us. And that's what he wants for us. So thanks for giving me your time. Uh, God bless you.